Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2015 film Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, this is a movie that I remember when this came out because I remember the title. The title is, is one that sticks out, um, but I didn't know anything about it. Uh, and this is going to be an interesting conversation because I, I, I want to say up top that I liked this movie, but I also have complicated feelings about this movie. Um, and I have complicated feelings about liking this movie. I, I will say I am. Um, I think I've reported this on this podcast already that I have reached a point in my life where I'm just a crier. So like the first time I watched this a couple times this week, First time I watched it, I definitely was in tears at the end. Um, but then I was also wondering how I feel about that. And yeah, so just a whole lot to talk about here. Uh, what is your history with this movie? Did you see this when it came out? No, I didn't see it when it came out. I think it, uh, it was one of those things where I, you know, I got the buzz on it. And I probably saw it maybe within a year after it came out. So I got it on DVD. Yeah. Do you remember your first impressions watching this movie? Yeah, I loved it. That was my, I mean, that was my absolute first impression. It's one of the reasons I wanted to go back to it. Um, and the main thing I remembered about it was, I mean, it's, it's obvious. What I, what I, I remember two things about it. I remembered, obviously, uh, that Earl and his friend were, um, that Earl and, and, uh, and Greg were all about making those parodies. So mm-hmm. I remembered that. I will confess that I did not remember the centrality of Werner Herzog, which... Uh, which surprised me. And then I just remember that I thought that it handled that particular theme of, um, you know, the adolescent with cancer. I thought it handled it in many ways in a non-sentimental fashion, which also attracted me to the film. Um, I guess I remember, too, the centrality of the narrator breaking the fourth wall. But I guess I mainly, I mainly gravitated towards it. And this is maybe one of the reasons for complicated feelings about the film. I'll let you uh, elaborate on that. But it is in some ways a cinephiles film. And I think that's probably what I most remembered, which is also why I made this the connection to contempt, uh, because mm-hmm. it's a film about filmmaking in many respects. And it also, films, it, actually. Yes. And it also has a very um, uh, explicit contempt reference, which I loved. Yes. Yes. I will say I'll say one thing about this movie. I, I could not have appreciated this movie in 2015. Mm. There's there. Most of the references they make would have been lost on me or i would have been like oh i think i've probably heard of that movie but this was a lot more fun to watch in 2022 because so many like i don't in 2015 i don't i'm sure i didn't know who werner herzog was mm-hmm. let alone like all how much he is involved in this movie um so uh yeah i mean i think i also the other thing i remember about this is um you and i are both on the honors committee here at bethel and we read um uh, we read students' applications, and one of the things they write about are books that they read. And I remember reading applications at this time, and this is there was just a whole bunch of YA fiction, and often YA fiction surrounding like somebody with cancer. And I mean, I remember you know reading lots of little essays on. Um, the Fault in Our Stars yeah. is another sort of version of this, and that was also a movie. Um, Paper Towns is not a cancer story, but that was another one that sort of came up a lot. So I don't remember if I, I'm sure I'm sure I read somebody writing about this book as well, because this was also a, a YA book from 2012. So it's part of that sort of rash of turning YA fiction into movies, which is also probably why I didn't pay any attention to it when it came out, because it just felt like without any context, just sort of another one of those films, which 
I had frankly massively aged out of, but I'm really glad I watched this because I, 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 I'll say I really enjoyed watching this movie. Um, <clears throat> when you, uh, as you were preparing for this or at any other time, uh, what's your sense of the, the critical response to this film? Because I was surprised by a couple things. So this, I mean, the, the, and this is not a super meaningful thing, but it has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, which generally means critics like this movie. Um, it won the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award at Sundance. But as I started to read reviews from the sources that I tend to read, I was, ama- I was amazed how many of those folks were either lukewarm on this film or out and out fairly critical of this film. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I, dig, I dug into a number of reviews as well, Sam, and I, I was also surprised having seen that, you know, if you looked at Rotten Tomatoes, you were going to expect mostly praise. But what I found, I, I, I found kind of three categories. Um, I would say the predominant category was appreciative, including a pretty tough critic like A.O. Scott in the yeah. New York Times, who did not like The Fault in Our Stars, Whereas those who were critical of the film kind of lumped it with the fault in our stars. Um, I would say that the biggest criticism that people had about the film was, um, <laughs> one critic put it, let's begin with the title, uh, Me. So a lot, of, a lot of critics objected to the fact that the film was so centered on Greg because they didn't find Greg particularly interesting or even consistent as a character. And they felt that, of course, the dying girl just became an excuse for Greg's own development as, as a character. So in a sense, that's the kind of review that really takes fault with the very premise of the film. And you and I have talked about this in, in the past. You know, does a, is it, How much is a critic of a film or a work of art kind of obligated to accept the premise of the film? And I think the film says that right up front. It's about me and Earl and the dying girl, but still that that bothered a lot of critics. And there were some people that really slammed the film. And then I would say there were people in the middle. Uh, there was one reviewer, I can't remember which one it was, it might've been the one for the Boston Globe. He said, I've seen the film twice and I'm still not quite sure. I, I love the, this element of the film. It's really sharply written. The characters are wonderful, but he says, I think the film has done a con job in itself. If it thinks that it's sort of the 400 blows for 2015. And of course, the director has identified two films as his favorites, and there are posters for these in Greg's room, uh, Mean Streets and The 400 Blows. And so in a sense, this film is kind of an homage to The 400 Blows, uh, Truffaut's great film. So there are those who kind of think, you know, it's a, it's a self-indulgent film made for the criterion-type cinephiles, people who go to Sundance and congratulate themselves on being such insiders who get all these film references. So I think that's why the critics were kind of divided on the film. Yeah. And, and what I, I mean, I wrote basically everything you just said is what I was, was my sense of it. I mean, and it, uh, kind of the marginalization of Rachel and Greg, or excuse me, Rachel and Earl in this story a little bit in terms of they serve as kind of props for Greg's story. But then at the same time, I'm like, but it is consciously Greg's story and Greg is very much an unreliable narrator. So we shouldn't take even his views of things as, as like gospel truth. I mean, he, he out and out, I mean, points out to us later in the movie. I know I said this, but that's not true. Um, I will say my, the complexity of it for me doesn't lie in, it does lie a little bit in the me. And, and I, I, you know, and I'll say all these criticisms, are, a lot of them are 
true, but I don't know that they're the point. And I think that's a little bit of what you're saying too, is like, you, you might be missing the point by wanting the film to be something that it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, 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 uh, complex feelings about this don't, don't have to do with the fact that Greg seems, um, well, a little bit that he seems so much at the center, but it's not that Greg is inconsistent or un, uh, unrealistic. It's actually a fact that I think I'm probably too much like Greg in <laughs> certain ways that like that makes this really hard for me because I it means I take those criticisms to heart a little bit more. You know, if, if you're if you're not at all like Greg, it's you can you can look at those criticisms with a bit of distance. If you're if you are like him, you find yourself saying like, well, okay. Am I, is there something about how I view the world or how I live life? That's an issue. Um, so, so, so I'm not going to let that overwhelm this conversation, but I want to know that that's humming underneath a lot of this. And when we get to talking about the characters, cause I want to do that. Cause I actually think, I think all three of the central characters are, are, pretty interesting in this movie in in a number of ways and i want to get into that now one other thing i'll say as we jump into this is because we had two weeks on this one and thankfully we did i was massively sick last week so it it turned out well that we didn't plan on recording i had a chance to read the jesse andrews book because i was curious to know because andrews not only wrote the book in 2012 but he also writes the screenplay so it's just a a work of Mm self-adaptation and we'll get to this later but i was struck by how different this story is than the, than what he wrote in in the book. Like, th- I I think you'll be surprised when I when we get to certain points of this movie when I'll just tell you that's just not in the book at all. So uh, so he definitely is is changing a lot here, which makes me think about like, uh, especially a film like this, how much the director is also uh, a voice in in shaping this uh, in shaping this movie because this is a movie that is so. Uh, consciously aware of movies, as you say, it's a, it's a cinephiles movie. And that's probably the most fun part of this movie is how much of these, uh, these references we, uh, we, we see in here. Um, yeah, and I think that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was also just going to add, it's, it's semi-autobiographical in that respect because the director, uh, he made a film with, with his 10th uh, grade friends. They made, he made a horror film called death, my hobby. So, so there's a certain amount of, uh, of him in the film as well. Um, I love the um, the montages of the the movies. You know, it, it's fun to see the titles and things like this. But whenever we see the there, there's a a one pretty big montage sequence where we're kind of getting introduced to the uh, filmography of um, of uh, of Greg and Earl. Uh, do you have any favorites uh, that of, of things that that appear in this? Oh uh, well, I, I guess I, I I have to, I have to say a sockwork orange. Uh, would would be right up there as one of as one of my favorites. Uh, just just because I love that title and I think they've really captured. They just do a great job of capturing of capturing a look of that film. Yeah, and I will say as somebody who has done a a, a fair bit of parody in my in my life for different things, like I really appreciated the the way that like the films don't look. I mean, they 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 look very handmade, and you're you're you would believe that very talented um, or fairly talented high schoolers made this because they pick like good parody. They pick a couple aspects mm-hmm. of the thing they're parodying and they nail that perfectly. And then they let everything else not work, <laughs> which is kind of what's great about them. I imagine that the, uh, the director and cinematographer had a, a blast making, uh, making all these little, um, these little things. So, so for example, the, um, uh, the 
the contempt um <laughs> you know they, they they do the opening scene where they with um Bridget Bardot on the bed but instead yeah. they have a Barbie doll yes. and they, they keep changing the filters for the color filter and I was like I love it's such a fast moment but I love that to be like oh I, I totally know what that's what that's referencing where again even a few weeks ago I wouldn't have known that would have made any sense to me so um, this definitely uh, definitely has benefited from doing this um, it reminded me a little bit of a movie I saw a long time ago um, have you ever seen Michelle Gondry's Be Kind Rewind no, but I know of it. Yeah, and, so it reminded me one, of that a little bit. Yeah. yeah, at least one quick reference as well. I've seen most of Gondry's other films, but I haven't seen that one. But you, you mentioned the cinematographer, um, Sam. I just have to say that it's really interesting to me. The cinematographer is uh, Chung Hung Chung, who uh, a South Korean cinematographer, and he's best known as where he works a lot with the South Korean director uh, Park Chan Wook who makes very different films. Uh, Old Boy, which I've never been able to get through, to be frank. Uh, Lady Vengeance, Stoker, um, The Handmaiden, which I, which I thought was quite good. But those, are, those films are so different from something that adapts a YA novel that uh, it's really impressive he, he shot this film. And I, and I have to say that one of the other reasons I really like this film is I love the cinematography. I just think mm-hmm. there's so much interesting stuff going on visually. Yeah, so... Um- one of the other things that I like about Greg and Earl as filmmakers and the way it's depicted in this movie is um, it, I'm trying to think about how to say this. Like it actually illustrates well, the kind of creativity of childhood, mm. because what I love about what Greg and Earl are doing is that they know it's imperfect. They, they know these are bad movies. They know it's like, nobody should see these, but we like doing it. Um, and there is this sort of when you're when you're young, sometimes you're more open to creative possibilities because you're you're aware you're maybe incapable of doing something perfect. So perfect's not even on the table. So you end up making 42 movies where, you know, I there there's a degree to which I wonder, you know, and, and the book has a little bit more of this because the book is more flirting with at the end, have they given up filmmaking? Like, is that part of growing up that this is a thing you do as a kid because you have this sort of reckless abandon, but like when this needs to be serious now, is this something that we can do? And and so there, there's this point in the book where um, both Greg and Earl independently destroy the, the only copies they have of their film. So at the end of the movie, mm. their filmography is gone mm. um, because they, they have in, 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 different ways come to this um come to this conclusion and actually earl gives earl quits filmmaking in the book um which is really interesting so so that's interesting to me this this sort of sense of like um needing to sort of move through this very productive period where you're not um again you're not worried about about the perfect but in that you learn to be something else so at the end of the book greg is going off um to college hopefully and but hopefully hoping to transfer to film school and rachel is actually before she dies is trying to talk earl into film school as well mm-hmm. um so there is a, there is more in the book about kind of where earl is headed although it's also a lot um he's maybe a lot more fatalistic about what his what his future is what, what i find interesting about the filmmaking in in the movie is um it's to me, it's part of this effort to figure out your own, find your own voice. Um, it made me think and this may seem like a very odd connection, but it made me think a little bit about Weird Al Yankovic. 
because Weird Al, you know, he does all these great parodies of existing uh, songs, but then he actually does some of his own original songs. Um, and this is sort of what, you know, Greg is kind of seeking in the, in the, in the, in the, film, in the movie. And when he's kind of given that assignment to make an original film, that's where he really falters, right? Because he's really not sure at this point. He's been hiding behind other people's work. Um, but at the same time, that is, that is how you learn, to be, you, you, you learn to be an artist, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of a T.S. Eliot approach. You, you take what's come before and you somehow plagiarize, but in the, in, the, in, the, in the act of plagiarizing or borrowing, you find your own voice. So it was interesting to me when I rewatched part of the film um, it begins with him riffing off of uh, riffing off of um, uh, Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, and he kind of plays out in his head what that actually means. And to me, that's a that's a great little capsule of what he's trying to do in this in the course of the film. He's trying to figure out what is my voice, who am I, who is who is Greg, and using the filmmaking as a way to kind of get there. So let me ask you this as in terms of this is like we said, this is clearly a, a cinephiles movie, a movie that's in love with with like referencing film and these things. Now that comes about in Greg and Earl's films. Do you also see that same kind of referencing happening in the filmmaking of this movie itself? Okay, that's a very good question. And I have to say that I can answer yes, only because <laughs> I listened to some of the director's commentary. And he points out moments in the film where he says, well, this shot or this musical bridge, for example, there's a lot of shots in the film that he says are intended to echo The Graduate. Uh, a lot of people label it very Wes Anderson-like, but he's mm -hmm. actually going for The Graduate. In fact, there's a scene where when Earl and Greg are um, still high and they come to the door and Molly Shannon meets them, the musical bridge is a Cat Stevens song which was also used in, I forget what film now he's referencing, because it wasn't what I was aware of. But anyway, so the fact is, yes, but I will confess I was not a good enough cinephile in many respects to pick up on those, but it is there. Okay, because that, that's one of the things that, that, that I wondered, like, um, and again, I don't, I don't necessarily have the, the language to pick up, the visual language to pick up on these things, but it's like, is this just surface level? You know, in the same way parody can kind of be surface level, in the same way Greg and Earl's films are sort of that way. It's like, well, we're taking this title and then we're turning it into this other thing. Um, I, was, I was curious about that. Now, I have one, one thing that I think feels like uh, actually a pretty great movie reference. I don't know that if, if it's intentional or not, but um, at, towards the very end of the movie, when Rachel is in the hospital and Greg is showing uh, his, the, the film that, that he made for her. <clears throat> and we get a lot of cuts back and forth between Rachel or between the screen, which, you know, has this abstract film that, uh, that Greg has made cutting back to then Rachel and you're just seeing the color from the screen moving on her face yeah. as she is passing into, into death or into what's ever beyond death. Yeah. And it actually made me think of the end of 2001, a space odyssey when Kier Delea is like in the Jupiter and beyond when you get to the, the big abstract, um, uh, I don't know what that's what you know what exactly that is if that's a black hole he goes through um, but it but it feels like a like a visual echo of that because we keep cutting back from her face and seeing the effects on her face yeah, to yeah. the thing on the screen uh, yeah actually that that's a good point I did I actually did think about that um, 
but the other, but at least one, uh, one observer has felt that it's actually a reference to Stan Brackage, who may not be a filmmaker that you know. Its last name is spelled B-R-A-K-H-A-G-E. Brackage was a really significant experimental non-narrative filmmaker. So he did a lot of things simply with images. He didn't tell stories with his films. And so, of course, it's possible that Kubrick was influenced by Brackage as well. But that, sure. was, uh, that was another uh, reference that some people identified. Oh, interesting. Um, so as you mentioned, Herzog is a, a big, uh, <laughs> plays a big role in this, um, in this film. So we first, we first see it, I think, from, are they watching uh is it they're watching Burden of Dreams in the... Um... Yeah, or they're, yeah, they, they're, they're watching both Burden of Dreams and Agira. I can't remember which one. Yeah, comes well, his dad is watching Agira when, he, when they Aguirre, walk the in. Monkeys, yeah. The monkey scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think Herzog is... Do you think that's significant that that's, that that's a filmmaker that Greg is definitely um relating to i mean the one of the great moments is when he starts to write his college essay oh, absolutely. and he writes it as Werner Herzog yeah because and, and and there's a there's also that scene where he's wandering through the house and you've got the Herzog voiceover talking about the cruelty of the world and yeah it just seems to me that it's uh, in fact one of the critics that already kind of picked up on that and said you know if you want to put Herzog's view of the world at one extreme and you want to put the fault in our stars at the other extreme. This movie is somewhere in between. So I think, you know, I, I think, yeah, Herzog is there as a kind of reference point. You know, if you want to, if you want to take a bleak view of reality, you know, Herzog's a good place to start, right? He talks about how the birds in the jungle scream as if they were in pain. Um, and so you've got that, but then I think you've got Greg trying to using that in a sense, whether consciously or not, to kind of process what's going on with Rachel, right? So you have the worst possible thing that can happen to a young teen, I think, you know, cancer. Mm -hmm. So, so I think he's playing off Herzog. Again, it's this notion of, you know, what happens if I try on the Herzog persona? How does that help me deal with what's happening, uh, to, to Rachel? Well, I think even as a filmmaker, I think something like Agira is pretty interesting to think about. Well, you know, because because in the in the book, the first film they make is they uh, as pretty young children, they attempt to make a shot for shot remake of Agira. <laughs> and it's the idea of like, well, this guy just went out into the jungle with these people and made this. So it's like, well, that's how you make a movie. And they're constantly going back and forth from looking at the film to shooting, trying to figure out how he made this. And um mm -hmm. And Agira is kind of a perfect movie to think about those things, um, to think about the sort of hows of filmmaking along with thinking about the um, uh, what shows up on the screen. So, yeah, I, I do think like it's it's significant that that's the that that's the kind of director. Um, plus, plus, it's you know, there is this sense of like a kind of independence in uh, in Herzog filmmaking. Maybe that's different than if they were, say, Spielberg fans or something like that. I think, but I also think it's the uh, it's the Herzog Kinski tension mm -hmm. uh, that also gets echoed in uh, in Earl and Greg's relationship, right? It's, it's my best fiend. Uh, yes. That's not referred to explicitly, but I think that's kind of underneath there, you know. And the fact that you know, he doesn't call Earl a, a friend, he calls him a coworker. And you think about that Kinski Herzog relationship, and that's very difficult to call a friendship. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm so I want to pivot to thinking about the characters a little bit here. I'm curious your thoughts about. The central characters. I mean, do you find them well drawn, believable? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you asked that question, um, Sam, because there are a few reviews that took those characters to task, and they said, "Well, 
Rachel's the, uh, that, that trope of the manic pixie dream girl and Earl is a trope of the magical Negro. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think there are elements of those tropes in those characters, especially when you see where Earl lives. And that's, that's a kind of um, distressing stereotype to me. But I, do, I think even though Greg is our central consciousness and we see more of Greg than we see of the others, I do think there's a sense of their, uh, of some kind of inner life in them. I think they are more than just characters who play off against uh, Greg, in particular Earl, but I think also to, to a certain extent, Rachel as well. Um, I, I think it, you know, a different film, you know, might've been able to develop all three of them equally, but that isn't what this film was going for. But I think there's enough to those characters that when they show up on the screen, I feel like they've got something to contribute and they're actually, they're actually interesting in their own right. Yeah. I mean, I would say, and, and here's where, where I would, I think about, um, uh, how Greg feels real and personal to me is uh, um, sort of his, his view of high school is this thing that you're surviving and his goal is invisibility. You know, like, can I just get through this without people sort of taking any particular notice of me? And uh, I was sort of taken aback when I encountered that in the movie, because that's sort of my, was sort of my approach to high school and my approach to, it's my approach to lots of aspects of life is like, I just kind of want to not be seen. Um, and, but what's interesting is Greg's way of doing that is very different than what I would do. I mean, I'm a very quiet person and hope to just kind of blend into the wallpaper where Greg is, takes like a motor mouth approach almost to like, to being invisible. Um <laughs> but what's interesting to me is uh, at his core, Greg is really, really, there's lots of things he says about himself that are self-deprecating and people keep calling him on that. It's like, you're not, why, why do you keep saying that? But the thing that he definitely is, is uh, he, he is socially awkward in the way of like, he gets in his own way of knowing what am I supposed to say at this? He's, I mean, I feel like he is constantly running scripts in his head about like, okay, when I go to talk to this girl who was just diagnosed with leukemia, like, what do I say? So he opens with a bad joke and he doubles and triples down on the bad joke and all these things where Earl, and this is where I think Earl is actually a really well-drawn character. If limited in what, in what they give him is that the second time I watched this movie, I was taken aback by how, good Earl is in social situations mm. that when he goes and, and meets Rachel, like he knows the things you're supposed to say. And it's not a he Earl never seems like he's running a script of like, okay, what am I supposed to say here? I always feel like this is myself where I'm like, what would a person say now in this situation? <laughs> I feel like Earl doesn't ask that question. Earl is a person. And he, he, he's empathetic in a way that Greg is really struggles with naturally empathetic, maybe where he knows, like when he walks into Rachel's room, like he doesn't say some stupid, awkward thing. He just has a conversation with her. And there's a point where he just turns to Greg and says, you shouldn't say that to her. You should offer to buy her ice cream. Let's go get ice cream. And he's just like, <laughs> like he just knows like, like that's the kind of person that I love most in life that I want to surround myself with because I have all, um, I have all this anxiety about like, what am I like, what is the thing I'm supposed to say? And then I watch someone like Earl and it's like, wow, that just, like, you didn't say something profound. You just said something kind and natural. Um, and, and, and I, so I actually think if you're paying attention to him, like he is, that's a real dynamic. I have lots of friendships where I have Earls in my life who are just like, 
I just like a, you're just so much better at moving through the world than I am. Yeah. You know, it's a, and, and in a way that could be part of Greg's reluctance to call Earl his friend. I mean, not only the fear of making that kind of commitment, which Earl comments on, but maybe just the sense that I don't know if I can be, if I can say I'm a friend with somebody who has that kind of assurance of moving through the world when I don't, uh, although he benefits from, from that as well. Well, and I think the peak of that is when Earl quits making the movie for Rachel and he leaves that USB drive and he gives his, basically his clip. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he says the perfect things yes. yeah. and you're just like, and it's like, Greg is incapable of, He's he's capable of those feelings, but I don't know if he's capable of making that speech naturally and honestly. He's maybe capable of like writing it out and delivering it, but it, but but it's like it's like Earl didn't have to think about it. He's just like, well, of course, this is what you say to somebody, and it and and it sort of comes from the heart in a natural way. And it's like, so I I, I don't know. I'm I'm actually very I'm, I'm very moved uh, moved by him. And, that, and again, I but at the same time, and this is where this is where my own issues come up here is like, um, I do think about how much we don't know about Greg or Earl, how much we don't, we mm. don't see that. Like the movie eschews anything about like, what is Earl going to do after high school? Yeah, like is yeah. it even, and even, even a degree to which, what does Earl think about the movies that they make? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that he, I, that's where, and I realized you can't just wish your desires onto a movie, but like, I, I, there are things I, I will say at least like I really wonder about I and 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 it's you know this is partially why I wanted to read the book because I'm like does the book give me any more insights into into Earl and there's definitely in the the book he is a little more fatalistic about I mean basically he ends up working at Wendy's and mm-hmm. aspiring to be a manager at Wendy's where Greg gets to go off and go to film school. And, and Rachel is trying to, uh, it's interesting because Rachel's trying to push Earl to film school as well. She's like, you're good at this too. You need to do this. Um, but he's in, in, he's incapable of seeing that in himself. So we, we also get to see some of Earl's blind spots in the book that the movie doesn't give you that, which maybe pushes towards the like Earl is this kind of magical figure who moves through the world in a, in a different, a different kind of way. Yeah. And he is, as I alluded to earlier, he is a little bit, you know, his domestic situation when you see it is pretty stereotypical. Um, yeah. And, and that's a fault of the book as well. I would say that there's, there's moments in terms of some of the like racial politics of high school that are pretty cringy in mm-hmm. the book. And um, they're not handled a lot better in the movie, uh, yeah. but you know, yeah. Um, and then in terms of, uh, in terms of thinking about, uh, Rachel, uh, what I, what's tough about her and it's, it's that, that she has to function in a particular role in this story that like, she is the insertion of the, um, uh, kind of realities of growing up into their lives. Like, like you think about being in high school, you shouldn't be thinking about people around you dying, but then, but 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 her situation makes that a necessary thought for her to deal with. It ends up being something Greg and Earl uh, have to deal with, uh, and that sort of I think accelerates some of the the kind of things you were talking about about this in terms of a coming of age story, a story about finding your voice and your maturity. That like Rachel's situation pushes them in that direction, but at the same time, then. I feel like we don't get to, she spends a lot of time listening in this, um, in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of time listening to Greg and we don't learn about her until we do. And then at the end, all of a sudden there's like, 
there's these this this revelation about like uh uh a whole other world of Rachel's that at least within the movie we're given only tiny indications of um so so I'm, I'm sort of curious your thoughts about uh kind of how we move towards the end of this movie uh because this, this movie has a uh we have both the the death of rachel but then everything after the death of rachel and kind of the revelations we get there yeah well and i would also say that the the movie has a point that's about maybe two-thirds of the way through where the the tone really starts to change uh as it as it's clear you know what's going to to happen to her um well you know the one of the things that he says that he that he learns is that even after someone dies you can still learn about them and i and i like the way the film actually embodies that right and and if you if you you know if you watch it a second time you know you just you realize that the first time he's in her room there are shots that that briefly show you those books that she we learn later that she's carved there's a mm-hmm. couple of squirrels in the wallpaper not a lot yet so it's like the the film it, 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 the, the film is referencing its own idea about learning about a person after, in this case, she dies. So I, I really like the way that, um, you know, anytime somebody dies in a film, you always say to yourself, okay, so what's the coda? Uh, we're not going to end right there. What's the coda? And, and I love the way the coda in this case kind of expands your view of Rachel and provides a kind of, I don't know if it's a kind of closure for Greg, but it's a kind of lesson that there is always more to a person than you than you see on the surface, and about how well you know him. So all of his anger at her for dying and for giving up, you know, he, there, that that becomes kind of a cathartic mo- moment as he realizes that there was a lot more to what was going on than he realized. Now, what's interesting is the in, almost the entire back third of the movie is a movie creation, not in the book. There is nothing about Rachel creating artwork with scissors. There is no story from the teacher about how you learn about, you can still learn about people after they right. die. Like none of that is in the book, which is, which blew me away. That So, so he, it's interesting. I, I kind of want to know more about, about Jesse Andrews and the, the, and, and the adaptation process here, because the, the, like, I feel like that's the central message of the movie in lots of ways. And, 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 and the book is that's, just not really there. So, so I, yeah, I, I find, I find, I love the, the, the moments when Greg is starting to go through her, her room and kind of having this discovery of really how little he knew about her, you mm-hmm. know, like, like when he, when he starts to open up those books and, and what's interesting is, is um, <clears throat> to the degree, this is a movie about filmmaking. It's a movie about the creation of art. And you realize we were in the presence of an artist the whole time and didn't know it, yeah. you know, like, cause I actually think this, some of the stuff that she does with those books is like, like that's, that's not just a, you know, somebody messing around doing crafts, craft stuff. Like that's really beautifully artistic, interesting idea driven stuff, which, you know, which could strain credulity a bit, you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing that somebody, might want to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that she really could have pulled that off or that it would have been something that he wouldn't have been aware of if, if, if she had. Um, but I think it's it, I think it is interesting that that's a that that's a deviation from the book, because it was the first screenplay that Jesse Andrews wrote. He, he'd never even read a screenplay before he, he actually wrote this one. And it was a screenplay after he wrote it that, you know, we talked last week about the Hollywood blacklist, you know, those 
those prized properties that haven't been produced yet. And this was this was on the Hollywood blacklist for a couple of years before it got picked up. So, okay. So uh, talking about art here, and I want to, I want to ask about Greg's final film. Uh, is it good? Does it matter if it's good? Does the movie want you to think it's good? <laughs> I don't think it's good. <laughs> it's not. It's not good. Um, I don't think the film wants you to think it's good. Okay. Uh, because I think it doesn't matter. Uh, I think what matters is the fact that he has shown it to her. Uh, and okay. I, I, but however, I'm going to back up from Sam and say, but on the other hand, it's, it's bad. Maybe, maybe the film does think it's good because he sends it off to film school. And that's sure what that. I was going to say. I'm, I'm not sure that's what I would have sent to film school. So, so maybe I should revise that answer. Maybe, maybe the film, maybe the uh, film does think it's good, or at least Greg think, thinks it's good. But to me, it doesn't matter if it's good or not, because what matters is that, is that he did it and he had the opportunity to, to show it to her. And it's part of that kind of um, reconciliation between the two of them. So it's more important as an act than it is as a result, even though in a, in a way the plot kind of requires that he send it off to film school. So he can, in a, so first of all, he has something to use as an application, but secondly, so he can say, um, so he can make that kind of witty remark Right, the last per- last person watched this film died and, and so fell into a coma and died. Okay, I'm gonna I'm going to try to save him sending it to film school because I think the film is not good. I think it doesn't matter to Rachel whether the film is good. What matters is that he made it. I think the movie can even tell you can even say it wants you to think the film is not good and it still makes it's still kind of beautiful that he sends it. And mm-hmm. I think why is because goes back to something I said before. It shows that that although this is about Greg maturing and Greg sort of coming of age, at the same time, he has still held on to the innocence of artistic creation of like, you have to believe the work you're doing is worthwhile, even when it's not, because mm-hmm. you'll never get to worthwhile work if you let that get in the way. <laughs> so it's good enough for him to send because he... This is, this is still a step on a process of if Greg is going to become a good filmmaker... It's, I mean, it's sort of like stand-up comedians talk about when you first start, you bomb all the time, but you have to keep convincing yourself you're good mm-hmm. until you get to the point when you're actually good. And like, I think that I think that's this. So I like the fact that it's not good, but he believes in it <laughs> enough to send it. Because if he didn't, it would show that he had either learned too little or too much. He'd either mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> didn't learn enough to know that like, this is a process and that Rachel believed in him. So he needs to keep chasing these dreams or he learned too much about like, these aren't good. And these are so bad that I, that, that, that I should just quit. Like he learned the appropriate amount to, to, to still send it off um, in that way. Um, Do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, I've got a few things, uh, Sam. One is um, I want to say that I appreciate an aspect of the film that a lot of, of people who are irritated by the film found irritating, which is I like, I love the intertitles. Um, mm. You know, the, the, uh, the, the part where Rachel's a few weeks into treatment, what do I even say? Um, the part where I get into my first fight ever, uh, the part where I'm accidentally on drugs, the part where it turns out Earl holds something sacred. I mean, those, those I'm sure struck a lot of people as kind of twee, um, but, but I really like them. And then, um, one of my favorite 
metacinematic moments is, uh, well, first of all, I thought you might pick up on this, but it seems as though when they're interviewing Molly Shannon, there's kind of a nod to Oh, the Intericon, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I love, they, they do, at one point they do a parody of the, um, of the, the, the logo shot for Michael Powell and, and, and Pressburger. We haven't done a Powell and Pressburger film yet, but we will, we will at some point. Um, and then, and then in terms of this film is, a, I've never been to Pittsburgh, but this film makes Pittsburgh look really good. Um, and one of the things that I discovered was I was trying to figure out when they're on drugs, why they were seeing the, the panda and the, um, uh, and the rabbit, I think, I can't remember, it was a panda and something else, a pig, panda and a pig. And I thought for a while that it was a reference to Donnie Darko. Um, but then that's one reason why I watched the commentary. I wanted to know. Well, it turns out, you may know this, but Pittsburgh is one of the centers of one of the largest furry uh, festival. Huh. It's called Anthrocon. This is where people, you know, dress up as animal characters. And in 2022, they got 10,000 attendees at one of these, one of these uh, conventions. So the director says anybody from Pittsburgh watching this film would know right away why those big furry characters show up. So I was going to use it as a bridge to watching Donnie Darko. But even if we watch Donnie Darko, this isn't the right bridge. Um, the other thing I want to say about the final thing, and this is something that distinguishes the film from our, The Fault in Our Stars, is they were very intent that this be a platonic relationship between Greg and Rachel. And I think that's really important because I think the other thing that you're trying to figure out as a teenage boy is how do I have a relationship with a girl that doesn't involve me wanting to kiss her uh, or it doesn't involve the, uh, the relationship he has with the hot girl that keeps crushing his heart like a, like a chip, uh, moose stepping on a chipmunk. And I really like that. I love the fact that the doomed friendship never moves beyond a friendship but discovers something, something deeper. And I have to say, since you've been autobiographical about this, I, I, oddly enough, from the time I was a fairly young boy, had friendships with girls that were just friendships. Um, and that actually, that actually continued through, through high school uh, and into college. And that was really important to me to be able to be friends with somebody of the other sex and not think that this is going to move into something romantic. And I love the way the film handled that. Yeah, and especially, I mean, and, and it allows them to do the uh, the the sort of movie moment of like, if this were a love story, this this would happen, and they do that twice. And what's interesting is, so you get that because so he's telling you this is not a love story, but then he also tells you she doesn't die at the end, even though you're like, I'm pretty sure she dies at the end because he told us at the beginning, I made a movie that killed a girl, so it's like okay. And so then, so what I like about it is it is both clearly not a love story in that way, but there's always, there's also always the possibility of like, well, but they're, they are in love in a different kind yeah. of way. Like, like, a, a, you know, and, and that it's what makes that whole prom moment. So mm-hmm. great, you know, oh, that, yeah. Yeah. that, that he gets asked to prom and you see him going to prom and then all of a sudden it pulls up at the hospital and you're like, Oh, what's happening here. And that, that leads directly to, watching the movie and 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 the last time that he sees her uh, is uh i think that's probably when i was when when the tears started for me um uh that stuff i i'm easily manipulated emotionally that stuff worked uh worked really really well on me and that it's so yeah i i totally agree that i like that it, that it's 
it's never targeted as being a love story and which which makes the love part real because you know we always talk about what appear what what are they telling us and what what do we actually see like I see that love, the love between them being really real, but it's also like not a realistic thing. And it's not a, and it is, uh, you know, it is, it is platonic, at least in that, in that context. I mean, who knows if Rachel doesn't die and they go off to cot, like who knows maybe, but like in the context of this story, it can't happen. No, no, absolutely not. All right, Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Well, uh, next week's episode will drop uh, the day before Halloween. Uh, so I feel like we need to do something Halloween themed or in some respect. So this means we need to do something that would fit within the horror genre, which isn't something we've done a lot of. So to me, the go-to film on this is going to be Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yes. I got to just got to do The Shining. Um, it's, 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 uh, yeah, I got an interesting history with the film. And so I just, yeah, yeah. Love to, love to talk about it. I am so excited. Uh, this is a movie that I have seen, I, um, but it, it took me a long time in life to sit down and actually watch it. And uh, this this touches a whole bunch of what really what I really love about watching a film. So uh, I am very very excited for this. Um, wow, I'm yeah. I that I feel like you just gave me a gift. I get to watch <laughs> The Shining this week. So Barrett, uh, thank you so much for recommending me and Earl and the dying girl uh, and for this conversation. And, and like I said, when we started, it, it's, it's a, it's a movie that I have conflicting feelings about. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I really do enjoy this movie. And I'd say if you haven't seen it, like it's, it's a really good movie to watch and, and it's okay to feel, I think it's okay to feel those conflicts. And cause I think, I do think some of those criticisms are legitimate, but also, not always uh, centered on, on the, on the point. Um, And I, you know, I should also say we are two, you know, white guys talking about this movie too. And some of those criticisms are saying maybe we've had enough of this version of this story. So, you know, take of that what you will, but thank you so much for recommending this film. Thank you so much for this, uh, for this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about the shining in the video store. (laughs) 